When it comes to butter, are you a purist like Annabelle or a pragmatist like Lee? Do you think only a monster would use anything other than butter? Or do you think it's okay to cut corners when time is short and your driver is waiting? Now Lurpak are bringing purists and pragmatists together with Lurpak Softest. Our softest Lurpak spreadable ever means you can effortlessly spread straight from the fridge without compromising that unique Lurpak taste. Win-win. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Stop. Hammer time. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is the stupidest gag, uh, and yeah, it's just that we wanted it. Hamer Hall isn't even Hammer; it's Hamer, and yet somehow that seemed to be the thing that we really needed to do here. Because in a place of culture like this, why not just uh, imperfectly rip just the piss out of somebody else's creative uh, triumph? Absolutely. Let's just take it right down here. I think so. Well, that's your policy. Do you know, I think um, my friend Kath told me that the dressing room I'm in is the one that Katie Lang used. So literally every single thing I'm doing, I'm like, I just did a nervous wee in the same toilet that Katie Lang did a nervous wee. <laughs> and your, sig- your single constant chafing, I'm sure, will be uh, as much of a hit. As... <laughs> I'm actually in Yehudi Menuhin's sister's uh, suite. Hepzibah Menuhin, I just like to say that a lot. Uh, Sales's sweet uh, dressing room has a grand piano in it. Mm. Mine has an upright, which ordinarily I'd be thrilled about, even though I don't play, but now I feel a bit miffed. <laughs> now stand up and show everyone this dress. Thank you very it's much. It's very excellent. So, <laughs> bought it on eBay about five years ago. Never worn it because, look, it is a great dress. Uh, made by Ms. Vivian Westwood, and who would ever argue with her work, ever. However, here's the trick. It's got this very structured corset, excellent, quite open. So, if you're a person who's a short person wearing it, and you attend, let's say, a galah ball of some kind, uh, at which other people who are less short are in attendance, everyone can see your rack. And uh, really, and also um, members of the avian community also just... I bet when you get home after dinner, you find like a ton of stuff. And it's just, it's basically full of Jets cracker crumbs (laughs) from the cheese platter out the back. Like it's very tactile in here now. I bet you at the, just stand up again. I bet you at the midwinter Canberra ball, when you're you're talking to sort of male politicians who would be my height or taller, you'd be getting a lot of this, Annabelle, lovely to see you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I've never worn it. But I thought, the good thing about this room is even those of you up there who can now see my rack, um, (laughs) I feel like you're all friends, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, the, t- the people up the top get to see your rack. The people sort of at about this height... <laughs> get to see, see your... Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> now, that is a lovely frock, but I also, because I have a fiendish attention to detail, am I right in saying that that is the same frock that you wore last time we were in Melbourne? It is! 
It is. You're like, what's and her name? Uh, Catherine. Um, what's the, you know, the Kate princess? Middleton. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, she's a big believer in Royal wedding correspondent, look, yeah. Look, I'm going to claim credit that I chose to do it to just, I, I find that just ridiculous, the idea that you'd wear a nice dress only once. So I'm going to pretend that I chose to do it. But I actually realised this afternoon about two or three o'clock when my friend Kath texted me and said, now are you dressing up tonight? And I was about to reply, yeah, pretty dressy. And then I thought, oh God. It's the same dress I wore last year for this show. But anyway. Now without a Suck rack. it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to be around your grace, your grace, your grace now, and forbearance. Um, now, you've been away quite a lot lately. And I have. I've been driving around California in a Winnebago. And I could tell you that story again because you got so... I told this story on the stage at the Gold Coast and... Muggins here was getting so impatient because I was sharing quite a lot of details. She's going, yes, and get to the point, and get to the point. And then, once I'd finished, she then crapped on for about 25 minutes about Dolly Parton. <laughs> Didn't see me raising an eyebrow. Now, because you've been away a yeah. lot, yes. um, we haven't seen a lot of each other. That's and true. I think in your head, you still think of me as the sort of daggy person who likes listening to Herman's Hermits, goes to bed at 9 o'clock, you know, just that sort of stuff. I haven't heard anything with which I have yet disagreed. <laughs> Something really weird happened while you've been away. I got cool. Look, I'm a journalist, so I'll require a, a credible second source. I've been listening to Nick Cave and I've been reading Patti Smith. I've just... I love that you think that that makes you cool. <laughs> Their coolness is rubbing off on me, and now I'm very cool. So um, I've been listening to Nick Cave's new album. Careful, she's got a printout. It's going to take a while. <laughs> I've been listening to Nick Cave's new album, uh, Ghost Teen. I'm not a Nick Cave fan. Generally, I'd say it's a bit dark for me, but it's, he's one of those people that he's not 100% to my taste, but I can still look at him and go... Yeah, I can see that you're very talented and that you're skilled at what you do. It's just not exactly my taste. I'll pass on your remarks to him. I'm sure he'll be very grateful. I brushed yeah, up against sure. the buttocks of Nick Cave once. Really? Yeah, in the Exeter Hotel at a big day out. There was an after party and my boyfriend was working on the bar, so I got in. And, uh, yeah, I just... He didn't know I was there, but I just slightly brushed against... There's not a lot of buttock there either, so it involved quite a bit of deft wow. hip thrusting. Anyway, you go. Poor. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Usually when people are the victim of a Me Too thing, they're the ones who out themselves. So, you know, God, yes. um, Nick's about to tour, actually, so I'll be keen to hear his take on that um, event. So uh, Callum uh, at work is a big fan of Nick Cave, and he always says to me the gateway drug to Nick Cave is the album The Boatman's Call, so I've listened a little bit to that. But I mostly wanted to hear Ghost Teen because it's the album that he wrote after his son, his 15-year-old son died. Um, in a terrible sort of accident and uh, I just, the story, it was one of those any ordinary day type stories and so I, I have followed it with a little bit of interest um, and in fact I think one of the, just to bring the evening right down, one of the saddest things I think I've ever seen is um, the footage of when Nick Cave and his wife leave the coroner's court, because you know how in media there's always um, people like shouting like Nick, Nick, look here and there's a lot of noise, it's just, it's dead silent when they walk out of the car, the, the court into the car. Well, quite, no one ever has a good question in those shouty things, oh, do they? I mean, like, it's no. like the whole, the general, like the sheer number of people pl 
present seems to somehow militate against the possibility of anyone asking a sensible question. But this, the, the moment of this, though, it was to do with the... It, they just looked so isolated because everyone... It's the fear that hits people when something oh, like yeah. that happens to somebody and even, you know, even um, journalists covering that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so the album is... It's not really the sort of album that you put on and, you know, do your housework to. You, you have to just sort of immerse in it and listen to it. It's really beautiful and, and sad, but, yeah, it's just quite exquisite. But it also sent me on a bit of a um, rabbit, down a rabbit hole, a Nick, bit of a, more of a Nick Cave rabbit hole. He has this thing called the Red Hand Files, which is like a blog, where people can write to him and they can ask him absolutely anything and he just picks some to periodically answer. They're all absolutely fantastic and he's just so thoughtful and poetic in the way that he writes. So I actually, rather than try to paraphrase one, brought one to um, read out. So settle in for the next 45 minutes and I'll... <laughs> It'll be chipper, I imagine. It'll be more yeah. interesting than that Winnebago yarn, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Was quite interesting, actually. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> The question was from Lily in Krakow in Poland, and the question was, how long will I be alone? Dear Lily, I'm sorry I've taken so long to answer this question. You sent it to the Red Hand Files almost nine months ago, and I have carried it with me all this time, wanting to answer, but never quite knowing how. I think this little question has stayed with me, not just because of the lovely beat of pathos in it, but also because of its extraordinary existential reach. It seemed that it spoke to all of us, yet it felt simply beyond me to answer. Aloneness and loneliness are two very different things, of course. I spend much of my time alone. I always have. I've learned that being alone, as bereft as it perhaps feels to some, is busy with meaning and disclosure. For me, it's an essential place that intensifies the essence of oneself in all its rampant need. It is the sight of demons and sudden angels and raw truths, a quiet, haunted place and a place of unforeseen understandings, a place of unmasking and unveiling. It can be industrious or melancholic or frightening, sometimes all at the same time, yet within it there's a feeling of a latent promise that holds great power. Like Jesus praying alone in the garden or Mary Magdalene alone at the mouth of Christ's tomb, aloneness holds moments that tremble on the brink of revelation and great change. And then there is loneliness, which is aloneness without choice, an enforced condition that yearns for recognition, to be seen and to be heard. This brave and unguarded admission appears to be the aching heart of your question. As I sat on the plane travelling to Reykjavik for the last show of my In Conversation tour, I felt suddenly that there was something I could say to you. Having spent much time travelling on this tour alone, it struck me that your question didn't have to be answered, but simply acknowledged that to reach out to you as you reached out to me could in itself be the answer and perhaps a remedy to say to you, you are not alone, we are here, and that we, a multitude, are thinking of you. Love, Nick. I really like about that is the la not the lack of urgency actually it's it's a really urgent reply but the fact that he traveled around with it and then answered it when he had an it's answer so thoughtful. Yeah. yeah it's so because thoughtful. i think um often the tendency is to try and um come up with something straight away that might do but actually you just waited for something to become available. Or I reckon if I got how long will I be alone i possibly would have skipped over it in the list of things because yeah. i would have thought 
Yeah, Next. I've seen like, you. I can't, I can't I've seen it. you edit, baby. That wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds in the sales inbox. Boom, bang. I will at least leave it in my inbox and then find it in 10 years' time and feel incredibly guilty about it. So there's that, I guess. Um, well, I guess then your reply to the person would be like, you are quite right to fear being alone because I ignored you for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you still there? Anyway, uh, just... Time for a quick blanket uh, apology to anyone to whom I've not responded in my <laughs> inbox of unopened. How much, well, I'm up it to was... like 13,000 or something. Yeah, give sales hives just to look at my phone. Every one of those, if you go to that website, you'll be just there for hours because every one of them is fantastic and, and similar to that. There, there's another great one where somebody is a teenager is upset about what they look like and how they hate what they see in the mirror. And Nick Cave talks about his own sort of issues with, with what he looks like. And he says it often strikes him as he travels around because he spends a lot of time staying in hotel rooms, how much accumulated misery the hotel room mirror must hold from all the people who've looked in it and hated their, what they see. Um, so, along with my new, my new um, cool found passion for Nick Cave. Um, oh my God, you've got to stop saying my new coolness because, like, I'm not sure it's entirely been established, baby. <laughs> Just like. Um, so, Patty Smith, uh, I read, what was the book, Just Kids? A few yeah, years and ago. then M Train. You've read yeah. every single Patty Smith. No, I haven't. You're... I've only read Just Kids. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You really, really like that a lot. Like you went on and on and on and on about it. Like well, you I like Robert Mapplethorpe's yeah. uh, painting, uh, p- uh, photographs as well. Um, so this is—it's sort of an unusual book, a bit like Nick Cave. She writes in a very poetic sort of way, and not a great deal happens. Um, she actually interviewed her clang on seven thirty um, a few years ago, and again, like Nick Cave, I'm not a big fan. I've never even listened to the album Horses. Um, did you make that clear to her before you yeah, kicked it off? Like, just, <laughs> I did, just to dampen her expectations. <laughs> How this is going to go? We established a wonderful rapport, and I said, "Patty, who?" Um, <laughs> Um, and I asked her, because I've always felt like, I think I've said on the podcast before, I don't really get poetry. I'm not, I'm not into it. And she, I said, can you just, how do you understand it? How do you get into it? I just feel like I can't. And she said, does it have to rhyme, Patty? (laughs) Help me out. (laughs) She said, um, just stop trying so hard. Like, just don't try to find meaning in it. Just like appreciate that it's a cluster of words that maybe sound nice together, doesn't have to mean anything. Um, so it was sort of liberating, actually. That was your epiphanic moment. <laughs> it was, was a little poetry. <laughs> anyway. Um, You're about to read some, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I could just sense it in my waters. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the ballad of Alfred Proof Rock here right. ready to go. <laughs> I like no. that poem. <clears throat> um, no, this is why I brought some Pinot Gris on stage. So this book, it's, it's non-fiction. It's basically about her um, coasting around the sort of Santa Cruz area. A friend of hers, she's just finished a tour. Um, a friend of hers is in hospital on life support. Another friend of hers, Sam Shepard, is really ill. And so she's in a bit of a weird place in her life and she's just having a bit of time to herself off the back of the tour. And she's having an imaginary conversation with the sign at the front of the Holiday Inn, uh, which works better, better as a device I than it you just name-checked Sam Ch- Shepard. I've just referred to Sam Shepard completely randomly in a text message to my friend Kate who has a son called Sam, and we're taking him to the theatre tomorrow night, and I said, oh, my friend um, can shepherd Sam home. She can be the Sam Shepherd of this. <laughs> and now here we are talking about Sam Shepherd. Did your friend reply, or did they just send an emoji going? 
It was more of a polite <laughs> smile one, actually. I'm just trying as hard as I can to totally just yeah, interrupt your flow. Yeah, I can flow. tell. Yeah. I can tell. What um, an interesting little story that was, though, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I'll shut up now. Uh, all I wanted to just read was one paragraph just because it gives you an idea of what her writing's like, and it's just a piece of writing that I really love, and I wish I could write an opening paragraph like this. Well, it's not the start of the book. It's sort of just an opening paragraph. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah. (laughs) While sitting beneath the oversized letters spelling coffee, I met a couple who were driving to San Diego. I took this as an auspicious sign. An eight-hour drive, and I could ride along for $85. We arranged to meet in the morning. No talking was the rule. I hastily agreed, not really thinking anything of it. Now, you just know that's going to become an issue, don't you? (laughs) Like, that's such a good setup. That's your dream, though, isn't it? That's my dream opening. Oh, well, that... Also, the dream of not having to talk to anyone in the car, yes. But the, uh, no, that's so hooky because it's so simple and yet you're like, oh, well, I need to read on because this is so weird and something's going to happen in the car, of course. She's going to say something and that's what happens. Not as weird as giving someone a lift and realising that it's Patty Smith. <laughs> yeah. Which is also They must being... have not known that it was her, I can I guess so. Assume. I don't know. Did you not Maybe read like on? me. <laughs> yeah. Well, she doesn't make it clear if they knew that it was her or not. But one would assume if you knew it was her, you wouldn't ask her to travel in silence, would you? Like, if I picked up Katie Lang, I wouldn't go, Katie, would you mind? I just want a bit of time to myself. <laughs> Back off, Katie. <laughs> I'd be all like, Katie, we once weed in the same toilet. <laughs> cool, you say. Okay. Well, you know. <clears throat> I'm not picking it up. Listen, I don't really... Uh, uh, the first book that I wanted to talk about um, is actually a bit of a sad one as well. God, oh. we've, really, we've really brought the mood down here at the... At the hammer, haven't oh, we? We've really hammered the hammer's mood. Look, Everyone I was think... super cheery when they came in. Now they're just like, oh, I am mortal. And <laughs> I guess all this will end. <laughs> so maybe, I, oh, no, I'll talk about it. I mean, um, I read the most extraordinary book um, when I was on holiday before I went on a binge of detective fiction. And I read this book called All at Sea. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's by a British journalist called Decker Aitkenhead. And it is... It is an incredibly, um, it's got a super confronting storyline. It is the story of her going on holidays with her husband, her two young children, her husband drowned while they were there. They were on holiday in Jamaica. And it is the most strange and beautiful piece of work because she shies away from nothing of what happened. You know, she tells the story in an extremely matter-of-fact way and the bluntness with which she recounts the detail and also simultaneously examines her own responses minute by minute uh, make for something quite unusual. Um, and Was she keeping a journal at the time? To... No. Oh. No. Um, she sat down later and just wrote it all. And it was... An, over the course of the book, you get a sense of the extraordinary nature of their relationship as well because it becomes clear that they weren't always married to each other. They met when they were each married to other people and they were kind of neighbours, actually, and they fell in love. And also, she was, I think, a bit posh. Her name's Decker Aikenhead, so I think we can assume. <laughs> not exactly a Mitford, but not really, you know, like she's quite posh. And then, and he... Um, was a drug dealer um, and a convicted criminal. He'd done jail time and stuff. And so they kind of fell in love and then they left their 
husband and wife, and then moved in together. It was all completely crackers. You know, it was very unusual. All their friends are horrified, and you know, for varying reasons. But it becomes this quite beautiful um, reflection on love, and also it kind of is about the British class system a little bit as well. It's the most unusual book, and I sort of was a bit scared to read it. You know when you're really scared to read a book that is about something so raw and dreadful happening to somebody? Um, And yet, it was a really, it was a very sustaining, life-giving sort of a book as well. I really, it has really stuck with me. Hmm. And that was on your Winnebago trip, was it? It was. When I, got, right. I, I read most of it on the plane, so okay. I wasn't sort of like, oh, well, here it, we go, barrelling around in our camper van. Exp- that and explains why you didn't get into a sidebar about the cost of gasoline per gallon or something. Thank you very much. I feel I already covered that. <laughs> For dedicated <laughs> listeners of the podcast, we'll already be across that story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, we have both also read Claire Bowditch's new memoir that's just about to be out um, yeah. called Your Own Kind of Girl. Has anyone else read that? Yes. Did you Is love that it? Claire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Claire's mum, wonderful. How happy you? No, it's uh, outstanding. We both absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, it basically... It's the story of her life to... Well, it's not... Is it to date? It ends earlier than to date, doesn't it? Did you actually read it? Yeah. Or, yeah, uh, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm just thinking because it's sort of... The, towards the end is when she's met Marty, her yeah. husband. Her husband was, of like 30 years now. No, joking. She's no, not but, that old. No, no, but... Not they, they, they have been married for a bit. Their kids are like teenagers. Yes. So, but it so, doesn't go on much beyond that. No, it doesn't. Yeah. So are we arguing or? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should seem to be agreeing but still I, being cross with each I other. I said it doesn't go to the present day and you claimed that that was inaccurate. No, I've just, the, the very act of you <laughs> seeking a confirmation to me really reeked of I didn't get to the end. That's all. <laughs> like, and I know that not to be true. Um, the thing that I liked about it was, you know, I do love a celebrity memoir and I quite... You know, I, I like a bit of a glimpse inside the, the rock and roll world or the Hollywood world or the whatever. But this is a really unusual celeb memoir in that there's no name dropping really. Like, and so most of the action is when Claire was much younger. And this is a book that she's written to herself at that age as this little time traveling missile through the ages to just it's the book that she promised herself that she would write if she ended up being okay. And it is the most thoughtful thing uh, for an adult to do for a child. That's the way I read the book. It's just, it's the sort of thing that she would have bloody loved to read when she was in her teens and early 20s. It's got a lot of humility, don't you reckon? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. There's not a sniff of kind of how fabulous I am about it. It's just very thoughtful and super honest and generous. It's like a little guidebook for the soul. It's her childhood. She had a very difficult childhood because she had, her sister had a um, sort of chronic illness that she died from when, I forget, was a sister about six, I think. Yeah, young. Really young. And um, so that was a really hard thing to live in a household where that was going on. And, you know, obviously you never really get over something like that. And so it sort of begins with that going on. And then um, she has issues with food from a very young age because she's quite a, you know, what people euphemistically call big boned girl, um, constantly with people commenting all the time on her appearance. And so she 
ends up going on a diet and gets quite slim and then people comment on her appearance even more because they're all the time saying, oh, you look amazing, you're actually really beautiful and so it just reinforces these sort of issues that she has with eating. And then she decides when she's in her early 20s she wants to have an adventure and she wants to make it as a singer and so she goes off to London and that basically, just the stress of changing environment and, you know, sometimes when you go on an adventure and you think, this will be great, I'm going to take myself off by myself to do blah, 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 and then you get there and you realise... Totally freak out! Oh, God, I don't know anyone. What am I doing? This is terrible. And so that happened, but in a, in a bigger way. Um, and so it's sort of... That was a pretty big catalyst. She has various relationships that she talks about um, as well, but it's just... It's very... Even though there's lots of things about her story that are not at all relatable, there's, some, there's an authenticity to it that makes it feel very relatable. Yeah, I, I thought it was... Um, I, well, the thing that really blew me away about it was her incredible recall of what it felt like to have, for instance, like a panic attack or what it... I mean, even the physical sensation of what it feels like to just think that your mind is kind of slipping away. I cannot believe how brilliantly she can evoke that working just from her memory. I mean, it's like being able to describe childbirth or something else that happens that's just freaks you out and then is sort of over. To be able to go back there and follow this little trail of breadcrumbs is not only just creatively phenomenal, but it's also useful. Because I think one of the things about mental illness in particular, I always think, is that people who struggle with it, particularly high-profile people, and then you know come out the other side there's often not a lot of incentive for people to go back there. I mean, it's painful, they're pleased to be through it, and then, you know, they don't always want to go back and talk about it. And I have the greatest respect for people who are willing to do that because they demonstrate, you know, so many people who have mental illness in their lives and then um, triumph over it. it, it's then sort of, it's weirdly disappeared from their lives. It's not in my life anymore because, hey, I'm better. And it does a real disservice to people currently struggling because there's no, you know, there's not so many success stories. Um, and so when someone writes one that's as perceptive and evocative as this one, I think it's a brilliant gift, not just to her younger self, but to the current younger selves who are going through it right now. So it's a great, it's a great book. Um, one of the reasons I enjoy books like that is because I like the, um, feeling of trying to understand other people's lives. And I guess that's one of the reasons I'm a journalist. I am interested in other people and what makes them tick and all the rest of it. But I listened to this podcast recently that I have been dying to talk to you about. I've been sitting on it for so long while you've been away. Really? Okay. It was an episode of uh, an NPR podcast called Invisibilia, um, and it was called The End of Empathy. Um, And what it was about was – it it sort of was about – Uh, a guy called Jack Peterson who was an incel. You know these guys who hate women because they Uh, never get laid and say it's women's fault, so you should hate women. Um, So this guy Jack... That checks out. (laughs) This guy Jack had been an incel and then he had renounced it and so Invisibilia, um, Hannah Rosen's the name of the journalist who hosts it, had gone and done a story in exactly the way that you or I would do a story, which is I'm here not to judge you but to try to understand, you know, regardless of what I think of you, I'm not here to judge you, I'm just here to understand and explain to people how you think. Anyway, they, they at this podcast, when they're trying to recruit people to come and work for them, like interns, what they do is they give them the raw material for a podcast that they've already put to air and they say, here you go, 
make something out of this. We want to hear. God, that's terrifying. I know. We want to hear what you make out of this. Oh, God. So they gave the Jack material to this girl called Lena, who was coming in um, to go for a job. And Lena delivered this episode that basically rattled the program to its core, which is, so this is just quoting from the script, Lena says, she sort of sets up who Jack is and so forth, and then she says... She hasn't interviewed Jack. Jack, the interview's in the the raw material. Yep, she's She's just listened to the raw material. And so she's just doing that kind of NPR... I was shocked when I heard this material. I just, yeah. my phone rang. Hello? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She was, except what, I've got a quote of what she said. So she sets up who he is and so forth, the basics like I just did. And then she goes into, what I meant to do is craft it like an invisibilia story, which is to say, empathetically, a thorough and thoughtful look into Jack Peterson's brain, how his character traits were born and what we can learn from them. And then she does not want to do that. She wants to judge him. Um, and so she, she moves into like, well, I've gone and watched every interview I can that Jack's ever done from his atonement to her when he's not an incel anymore. And I think that he lacks self-reflection. Um, and then she goes through the interview that he's done with Hannah Rosen and picks it apart and says, well, you know, he talks about how this journey towards becoming an incel was because he got dumped by his girlfriend. And so he jumped on a plane and she lived in Alabama and he went down to see her in Alabama and um, just knocked on her door and then she was like, I don't want to see you and blah, blah, blah. And so Lena was, well, that's harassment and breach of privacy. She dumped him. That's that's sick behaviour that he went down. It's not something that we should have empathy for him for. So um, she's then delivered her episode and so then, and so this all gets played in the actual what they've put then put to air and Hannah Rosen then says, right, so I've listened to this and I've felt, I'm in the elevator going upstairs and I just feel embarrassed, angry, called out. I feel like I've been made a fool of and it's really rattled me. So Calling out Hannah Rosen would be scary as well. So then um, Hannah Rosen calls Lena in and then interviews her in the podcast and they talk about their different... This is like peak podcast now. It was... It's like... (laughs) It was really good. So she calls her in. And then the dollop arrives. (laughs) I had to take the piss out of the whole thing. (laughs) Um, She calls her in and says, you know... What we're about here is like objective journalism. We're not about judging people. Like, you've got to let go of your preconceived ideas. And Lena basically says, no, because not, they, they have a discussion about empathy. And Lena's view is not everyone deserves empathy. Like this guy doesn't deserve my empathy. His girlfriend deserves the empathy. It's, an, it's against the backdrop as well of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court thing, they're having the discussion. So um, Hannah Rosen then goes away and has a bit of a look at empathy and discovers, and I was really amazed by this, that empathy was basically just an obscure psychobabble term until about the 1960s and 70s. Really? Yeah. And then the term got sort of social psychologists um, and academics sort of pushed it up the, you know, food chain and then people started talking about it. And it was basically out of fear because in that Cold War era, it was a question of, um, well, we need, it's either going to be World War Three or understanding how other people think and what they have in common with us to try to keep it all under control. But then this academic they interview, who's an expert in empathy, says about 15 years ago, they started noticing that students had dropped that idea of empathy, like of the importance of understanding other people's point of view. And they wanted to reserve because they felt like empathy has a cost, it takes energy. And so they felt like my empathy should be reserved for people who deserve it. So it's this fascinating podcast. But the thing that was so annoying was, I want to know at the end, did they hire her? And they don't answer that question. 
They Maybe they just answer. gave her ballsy intern of the year award yeah. and showed her out the back. Well, oh, look, it, it was interesting because I was thinking... She'd be fun at a Christmas party, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, on one level, like, creative, bold, thoughtful. Like, she ticked just courageous like she ticks a lot of boxes that you'd want to have on your team but also I'm just imagining like yeah Lena look thanks for coming in you've pretty made us made us question pretty much made us question the entire basis of our program and everything we believe about journalism but you've also really embarrassed the anchor and so see you later (laughs) maybe we'll just get back to you yeah don't call us so anyway it was super super interesting I can't believe you sat on that for ages because, like, you, oh, I've been you've told me about the, to talk the, about the, it. the... Now, of course, I can't stop listening to the Dolly podcast because, you know, my friend Kerry here tonight um, texted me about it first uh, and then you told me about it at great length, uh, at the Gold Coast, and then I was just a bit like, you know that 20 minutes that you, expend, you spent explaining the different types of melody uh, in country music? Uh, Do you mean when it, that best 20 minutes of your life? Uh, and I thought, no, I'll start listening. Of course, I'm now a complete gibbering slave to it. It is the greatest podcast. I and I resent you a little bit for being right. What about, about the, the third episode that was just on where they drive, they go to Dollywood and then they meet Dolly's nephew and he says, why don't I take you to the actual Tennessee, you know, the Smoky Mountains cabin where she grew yeah. up, the actual one. Yeah. And so they drive there and then they get there, they get to the front gate and he can't find the keys to yeah. get in. <laughs> like, oh God. Podcast <laughs> withdrawal. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it's brilliant. We shouldn't go on about it anymore because, really, it's been discussed. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I, I have been wanting to talk about an ingredient for some time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that opportunity. Oh, this sounds thrilling. Man, seriously, we haven't talked about cooking for a little while. No, we haven't. And I've been, um, as you know, I'm having my kitchen done up. Yes. Uh, well, Is it finished yet? Not, not quite. Not quite. Uh, we've moved back in. Not quite. It's looking lovely. Anyway, but we've been we've been um, just in an Airbnb house, um, not far from our house. So it's like in our neighbourhood, but on the other side of the tracks. And it's like living my side of the tracks. Actually, yeah, it's actually really close to your house. You'll notice that I just haven't been I dropping. Why in. those real estate yeah. values? Suddenly. I know, just plummeted as yes, they do. But there's this guy who set up this shop. It's near the Stanmore Station, oh, yeah. called the Tenth Muse, and he's he's from Adelaide, so I like him. His name is James, and he's had a lifelong desire to run a deli, and so he's just opened one up, like a sort of fancy deli. And I walked in there, and I immediately, well, actually, over the course of about twenty minutes, found. A, like a bunch of ingredients that I'd never heard of or that I, you know, had heard of but I hadn't seen before actually in the flesh. Margarine, for example. (laughs) We'll get to that. Um, And I bought a jar of something called Sultan's Paste. Has anyone got Sultan's Paste in there covered? Like it's a Turkish, you know, it's a jar, you know, and it's got 41 different spices in it. Oh. Yeah. What, like I what? just bought it because it sounds a bit icky. Sultan's paste. But what are the? What's the array of? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I took note of a oh few God. of them. I won't oh, read out no. all forty-one. It's got. Um, it's called Messier Marginal. Please correspond with me if I've mispronounced that. I'm sure I have. Cinnamon, ginger, clove, cardamom, mace, saffron, nettles, myrrh, honey, grape molasses, mastic, allspice, cumin, buckthorn. 
I could go on. I won't. Uh, it's also called, apparently, Turkish Viagra, and something you... that I didn't realise until after I'd paid James for it. And uh, do you apply it to cuts and then put a poultice over the top, or what's the...? Its uses seem to be endless. Um, it, it, it was invented by some sort of um, medic who was attending to the widow of a sultan in the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, and she got better, and everyone was suddenly... Sultan's paste? How good is Sultan's paste? <laughs> and now they have an annual festival in March, the Mazir Majnu Festival. And so basically this stuff is, it's so creepy because it could be sweet or savoury. It's, it's got that kind of Christmas spice mix kind of vibe. So you've probably sprinkled it on a cake with some pine nuts? <laughs> is this going to get unkind? Because that always works when I do that. You're the only person who doesn't like it. I hate to tell you, but there was actually a poll that was done. Really? The... Are you for real? <laughs> you people are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> what, a new one? It's in the Facebook group. It, it's about 70... Well, last I looked, it was about 70% in favour of almonds. Last time I looked this morning. Wow. Sometimes you just feel really betrayed by the people that you thought you knew, I guess. <laughs> But anyway, I'll keep going, contributing, doing my best, trying to bring you lovely things, but, you know, just keep all So have you cooked me. with it? Yeah. Yep. Have you cooked with it? I have. I think, so it's got this, it's, it's kind of all of these spices blended with honey, like, so it's quite sweet, but it's also got that, um, I don't know, it's got everything in it, so it's, it could go either way. And um, I, I, you could definitely put a teaspoon of it into some tea, I think, and make oh. it, it'd be like a chai sort of effect. But I, for some reason, I don't understand why, I, um, on the day that I bought it, I bought all this pork. Don't eat pork. Uh, <laughs> and I made lots of slow-cooked oh, yeah, pork. Oh, you go with pork. I right, and so I made this sort of rub. I made a rub out of the Sultan's paste. <laughs> Out of the Turkish Viagra. It's probably not the prescribed use. <laughs> I'm just like, thinking that's just like, maybe how they got And I the gradually paste. massaged the, the paste of the sultan <laughs> into my pork. Uh, I don't know. What was I thinking? I think I was just a bit stressed. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I sort of smushed it up with some oil and a lot more cumin and um, something else. This is helpful, isn't it? Uh, some, maybe some, some garlic, I think. And then I sort of rubbed it all over the pork and then really slow roasted it so it was was it good i've no idea i mean oh. to... <laughs> hi have we met and also uh, is it cumin or cumin okay this is something can we just get the lights up because this is i feel like this is this has been brewing for a while yeah i don't See, you said you say cumin i say cumin i, say I think cumin. i could be wrong oh all right, does cumin. anyone say cumin? Can we get some house lights? oh my god tons of people there's a like there's a full there's a cumin there's a, yeah, this wow. is a human revolution. Yeah. yeah. Shit. Okay. Well, maybe I got it wrong. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I feel rattled. Anyway, yeah. I put some feel of like that in. feel like this mob could turn. <laughs> feel like that nice vibe from earlier I is know. just one, like, little the ugly. poofed yeah. from... Uh, anyway, I put some of that stuff in. Anyway, it seemed fine. I mean, everyone seemed to like it. But um, I quite, I, I, I think there's a long future for me in Sultan's Paste. If only so that I can just say Sultan's paste a lot. Yeah. Um, I, um, as you know, um, did, has anyone caught up with the butter people who are here this evening? Oh, no, maybe no, you'll meet them on the, the way out. The end, right. Yeah. Oh, there's treats in store. There's, I don't know, this podcast gets stranger and stranger. And one of the <laughs> things now is that you'll get some butter because 
the people from Lurpak are here just giving out butter. I have no idea why, how this works, but like, I think that they've located the, uh, the hot spot of butter consumption yes. in Victoria. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone's here. The, and, um, the, like, the Venn diagram for butter consumption in our podcast would be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except for the margarine user. <laughs> Who we just I tolerate. Use butter, I use butter in cooking. I just like sp- the spreadability of just... margarine. <coughs> oh, <laughs> boo-hoo. Oh, look, at listen. Well, people are about to start setting a... things on fire. That's why they <laughs> invented a spreadable one for just idiots like you who can't work out that you just put a lovely butter dish, you put the butter in the dish. It's so easy. It's just okay. insultingly easy. Anyway. See, this is why um, I think I'm in touch with the quiet Australians. Oh, God. Here we go. They're not wanking on tonight about butter, are they? No. They're sharing your philosophy. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, But look, we've got some um, top-shelf butter consumers in the audience as well. I won't call Kate Pritchard up, but you know that, I mean, yeah, you know that she's in the house tonight. She... She posted in the Facebook group earlier in the week um, the amount of butter that she used for a single cake, and it was like about 24 oh, blocks. I saw that. It was an, it was an artery it must be like It has to be like a photograph. tiered sort of cake, right? That can't be one Does she cake. make any other kind? I don't know. Like it, yeah. it, I just I could not understand how... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also, we also have another um, quite significant culinary icon in the audience. Um, now, any of you who have uh, the cookbook that Wendy and I did called Special Delivery may or may not have made the glass potatoes that are uh, the greatest <laughs> uh, combination of carbohydrates and fats uh, that I have yet uh, encountered. And I think it's only fair to mention that Alice Ryan, author of The Glass Potatoes, is in the house! Uh, so I actually want to bring her up on stage this is a complicated arrangement because you are packed in like goddamn sardines so it's like a HR issue but I reckon are you round Alice oh there you are oh yeah well, can you, you go, go over, that over way there or and someone will meet you way? oh yeah <laughs> head that way all right um, While Alice gets up here, I mean seriously it's like a rabbit warren back there um other people that are in the house that are awesome are Mandy and Kate from the Two Peas podcast. Oh, yeah! <laughs> oh, my God. Superstars, those ladies. Can you just give us a woohoo, ladies? Can you give us a woohoo? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, good. Peas are out on the turfs tonight, oh, aren't yes, they? exactly. Um, thank you, Peas, because you have brought so much happiness to so many people and um, you just continue to flourish. And I can't stop listening to that podcast still. Every time a new one drops, I'm just... I was so happy. It was. I listened. You told me to listen to the one where they talked about what happened when they got mentioned by you. Um, oh yeah, um, yeah. That's because they mentioned you, so that's why you listened. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to the one about you. No, you missed the bit where I said you told me to listen to it because it was about you. Oh, that's true. God. Yeah. Where's that's Alice? A little Here bit true. Let's save it. Hello, oh! Alice. Alice Ryan. Is it a crumb catcher? All right. <laughs> so I just wanted to get a little bit of an update on uh, you and potatoes. Can you just ex- can you just describe the glass potatoes? Because like she will sign copies of the cookbook later on. I brought a sharpie. Um, <laughs> various members of my family will dispute that I'm the inventor of glass potatoes. 
they would be wrong. <laughs> and it was a dish that was born of my inability to cook and drink at the same time. So if you come to my house for dinner, you'll get basic food. It'll be hot and tasty. It'll be simple, though. So it was a dish that you could put in the oven, forget about it, get a little bit buzzed with your friends, go back an hour and a half later, and they were crispy. It's an accidental dish, but very popular. <laughs> it's kind of like the fish and chips, like the best chips in the hot chip packet. That's what I reckon. Like, they're all so translucent with oil that they are called glass potatoes. And they retain that crisp, even after being in the fridge for 36 hours. Oh, that's pretty great. Um, now, do you have a current cooking breakthrough? Is there anything that you're, like, making a million times a day right now? Well, it's funny that you were talking about pork before, because I have never cooked pork, because my mum thinks pork's unladylike, and that women don't eat pork. <laughs> so I've never cooked it. But I just got um, Anna Del Conti's book, The Gastronomy of Italy, and she does a pork loin in milk. So now I'm just obsessed with cooking all meats in milk. So that adds about 24 hours to my cooking process, but it's totally worth it. Something to do with calcium and lactic acid. It's very, very good. Well, you could get good and loaded during that cooking period, I imagine, <laughs> my friend. And I do. <laughs> well, look, seriously, it's the best use of a carb and a fat that I've ever encountered. I just wanted to acknowledge this lady for her work for the potato and oil community. Ryan. <laughs> also, um, well, uh, I'd like to thank her for her intellectual property that I used in my book, obviously. <laughs> While we're standing up, sorry, just before I go on, the milk line <laughs> reminds me of a show I was watching where one of the characters said somebody was drinking milk and the character goes, what's this obsession with milk? You know who drinks milk? Kittens and perverts. <laughs> um, now, I want to invite somebody else up. Donna, where are you? Speaking of kittens and perverts, Donna. This is a really oh, bad Donna. intro okay, to our charity partner can this you, evening. Can you come around, Donna, and Speaking just do the same thing? Speaking of kittens and perverts. So, <laughs> Donna works with children, Lee. This is going very well. Yep. So every show that we do, we donate a portion of the proceeds to a charity, and it's usually something geographically linked to wherever we are. And for I think this is be the third year, um, or maybe the fourth, that we've done. Um, we support the Royal Children's Hospital, and we support the work of what we. <laughs> horribly called the bum unit. The bum unit. The bum unit, um, which is, it's in the children's hospital. Um, one of the things I learned when I was researching my book is, if there's a cause that, say, somebody with a high profile um, becomes ill with, often the donations for that will go right up. Um, and also, the, the more people are affected by something, the people who mostly donate to something are people who are affected by it or they know somebody who's affected by it. So if you're somebody who has a rare condition your chance to get money for research into your condition is much, much harder. Um, so we ended up, um, you know, because we're not cool, we thought, let's find some uncool causes. Um, and children's bums are one of them because no one wants to be the pin-up for children's bums. Um, so... Is this a conflict now that you're cool, though? Like... <laughs> Yeah, might have to find some cool, hideous um, illness to back. Um, so we support um, the research that gets done um, by the team there that's headed up by Dr. Sebastian King, who we he very good-naturedly allows us to call him the Bum King. Um, but the Bum King isn't here at the moment, so Donna's Mysteriously come unavailable out. tonight, though, yeah. for some reason. Donna's I don't know why. <laughs> From Royal Children's. Hey, how are you? Um, where is the Bum King? I'm going to read it out because it's a really <laughs> The Bum King angle. send a message from his private kingdom. 
there's no way I was ever going to remember this. So Sebastian sends his regards and thanks to everybody and wishes he could be here. But unfortunately, he's at invited talks at the World Federation of Associations of Paediatric Surgery. This meeting occurs every three years in different parts of the world. And he's going to be discussing anorectal malformations and Hirschsprung's disease with some of the best bum doctors in the world. <laughs> um, it's a pretty good reason. We get that a lot for people not showing up. Now, what's been going on in bums since we last saw Sebastian? So the really exciting thing um, that's happened at the hospital, which is very significant for us, is seven years ago I met Sebastian at a fundraiser and actually the the mum, uh, Bianca de Brincat, is here tonight who had that fundraiser. And uh, we sort of, you know, discovered that we had a mutual um, admiration for pooing properly and being able to go to the toilet properly, that everybody was entitled to that. And I had no idea that there were three or four hundred children in our patient cohort at the Children's Hospital for whom, for whom that was just not something that was possible. And we made a bit of a pact together that night that we would do everything in our power to give these invisible kids a voice and get them the support and let them be the beneficiaries of philanthropy like lots of other kids are for a whole bunch of illnesses and diseases. But this is something that's difficult for people to talk to. Um, And with incredible investment, much from families that have been patients of Sebastian's who understand uh, the stigma and the difficulty, the challenges, uh, the impacts on relationships, how to tell family that this has happened to your baby. Uh, Most of the children are diagnosed at birth with these issues. I just say thank God for somebody like Sebastian King who's made it his life work to give these children a chance. Um, This year we were thrilled that Sebastian was able to uh, go to the government and and make a case for these kids and receive a government grant for $5 million, which means that uh, we um, have now been able to establish the very first complex colorectal service in Australia in a paediatric setting. So that means that we are leading the way, and Lee and Annabelle, you're part of that, as are the other mums you've invited from the hospital tonight. This girls' night out means so much to them. For there to be a silver lining in for what many of them has been a really tough uh, time with their babies so far, we just can't measure that. So absolutely thrilled to be able to let you all in on that amazing news. We have two dedicated nurses and a psychologist on hand for all of our families presenting with these um, conditions. It's, an, it's just an absolute blessing. We're thrilled and so proud. It's taken seven years, but we got there. And it's just phase one. The Bum King has many more phases uh, to go. But uh, we are just absolutely thrilled. So thank you, Chatters, who've also supported. There is a link on the website if people want to know more. But Lee and Annabelle, thank you from all of the families and all of the babies at the Children's Hospital for including us tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Donna. The Bomb King! <laughs> that is some awesome news. And look, while Donna's taking her seat as well, there's one more shout-out I wanted to do about somebody else rather special who's in the audience. Like, the last... Um, a couple of podcasts we talked a little bit about um, about a girl, um, the book written by Rebecca Robertson about her daughter, Georgie Stone, and they are both in the audience tonight. And, um, yeah, we had a little 
round of applause for those two because just the response that we've had just to our conversation about that book and about Georgie, who is just the most lovely, lovely young woman. I actually met her at a function and I was like, you look super familiar. Why do you look familiar? She's like, oh, I'm on Neighbours. I'm like, no. And then I'm like, oh, your face is on a book that I've got on my bedside table, which has been a like, slightly unnerving reveal. I'm like, oh, is that... Yes, it's all right. Because it's such a lovely face and so recognisable. Anyway, um, but just even the response that we've had, such a sort of trembling emotional response just from parents, um, just from us talking about the book, which is wonderful, on the podcast, it must be a million times greater gift that uh, Georgie and Rebecca have given to parents oh who are trying to find a way in a, like, unnecessarily trouble-strewn, like, artificial trouble-strewn area. It is such a powerful and reassuring book just about how simple it is, really. It's not that complicated. It's just about love and belief and perseverance. And um, so thank you, Beck and Georgie, for... Um, sharing your lives with us. Um. Okay, I'm going to get through this as fast as possible because I don't want to take us over the 30 minutes. If you like chat10looks3.com, you can visit our website. Um, there are links. Give the address for sales. Give the address. Chat10looks3.com. That's what I just said. Oh, Everything we talk about, there's links to all of it right there. There's a thing that called Bedside Table you can click on. It's an online bookstore. You can buy the books that we talk about. Uh, sometimes there's merch for sale on there. Sometimes there's details about live shows that we're doing. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram. And if you see Annabelle Crabb in the streets, make sure you walk up and say hello and ask her to open your local school fate. And I will give them your home address. You're welcome. Okay, that milk quote that I shared before is from a show called Succession. Oh, oh right. God, it's so So I haven't so been watching good. that, but you have. Yes, it's so good. Well, did you deliberately pretend to not remember where that was from and then suddenly remember the milk thing for the segue right now? Because no, 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 because I... She's full of these things where, like... I've got sure. a in, running in joke going with a friend to do with milk, and so anything about milk currently stands out. <laughs> sure, at me. we've all got those. And, yeah. and, <laughs> and then when milk came up, it was too good to not use it. Then blah 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 blah. Yeah. Sure. No. Just, that's just it a was... little insight into how my mind's always ticking across. <laughs> it really um, killed as well. Succession is that the show that sort of people say it's like based on the Murdochs, or that's the inspiration. So the premise is. Um, elderly patriarch who's a global media mogul um, is starting to ail. He's got four kids. And it could just be a coincidence, though, couldn't it? I oh, mean, it might be totally total, about a totally, totally different dude. Totally. Um, four kids. He's also. Are you sad him. that Rupert Murdoch's left Twitter? I really am. Oh, I used he? to. Re- yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. His last tweet was on the day that he married Jerry Hall. Oh. It's a crime. I oh. just used to really. Oh. I just love that idea of just that he was Rupert on the laptop. No one around him is just like, oh, truth bomb. <laughs> anyway, sorry, continue. Um, so the four kids are sort of vying for, you know, who's going to be ultimately dad's successor. Um, it is, I can't tell if it's a drama or a really black comedy. It reminds me a little bit of The Sopranos. It's nowhere near as good as The Sopranos, but it's in that sort of ballpark where, like, I laugh aloud a dozen times an episode. Right, um, okay. 
the, the two people in it that I find the funniest are the two two of the sons. One of them is played by Alan Ruck, who was Cameron in Ferris oh, Bueller's Day I love Day Alan Off. Ruck. Yeah. So he's hilarious. So he, he's, he's the son who lives in a big sort of compound in New Mexico, but he's decided he wants to run for president, to fund his own presidential run. Um, <laughs> there's a great line as well where one of the other siblings says, you know, Connor, Dad just doesn't want you to do this. And he's like, oh, well, Dad doesn't want me to. Tell him to get a number behind Bezos and the Clintons. <laughs> Um, and then there's another character called another son called Roman, who's played by Kieran Culkin, who's the sort of slightly loose. Um, How many Culkins are there? Heaps of them. What's the current Culkin count? I don't know. But there's a lot. There's yeah. like yeah, it's like the Phoenixes. Like there's a few. He gets the lion's share of some very funny and crass lines. Anyway, it's, I've been trying because we had the Gold Coast show and then this show. I've been trying to watch just a few episodes of things here and there, so I'd have plenty to talk about. But Succession, I can't. I'm, I'm you know, eight episodes into season two. I sort of dropped the threads wow. on everything else. Yeah, because okay. it's so good. All right. Well, I'll start watching that then. I yeah. sort of thought I was a bit burned out after the Roger Ailes one, and I sort of thought. Oh, it's totally different in oh, okay. tone to that. Yeah, I just thought another show where there's no redeeming characters. Am I ready for it? I don't know. Maybe um, I'll maybe I'll back you it like up the, the Sopranos. Tri- yeah, although I always get mixed up about who's who. Like, um, I I'm having this terrible like that that movie that I once got to. I told you about this. That I got to the end. Oh of yeah, the, yeah. The Departed. And you didn't know that Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon were different people. <laughs> I didn't know. Look, I actually have this problem with conventionally handsome men. I cannot tell them apart. <laughs> and it happens to be, like, I'll run into someone and I'll like, oh, God, you, which one are you? Did you, you know that Alan Ruck wasn't the guy who was playing Ferris Bueller, right? Mate, I can tell them apart. Like, at least they're interesting to look at. But it's the sort of cookie-cutter handsome ones. I'm just like, sorry. And sometimes I actually meet someone socially and I can't remember them again. And it's actually a really good thing to be able to explain. I'm like, it's just I have real problem recognising people who are very handsome. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, that, that was a dark moment when we got to the end of that film. I'm like, but isn't he the... And Jeremy just turned to me and he said, are you joking? <laughs> like, what? I, thought that, I just thought they were the one guy. The whole time. <laughs> Look, I was a bit tired. But anyway, um, I get that a bit with all of those gangster things. I'm like, but who's but Fat Tony? Is he is he different <laughs> yeah. from you know yeah. Jimmy the Winder or whatever? <laughs> like, oh. and why are they Jimmy the Winder? <laughs> Um, Before I got stuck on Succession and it just hooked me in its claws, um, I had watched a few episodes of a thing called The Spy, which is uh, on Netflix. Sasha Baron Cohen plays. Oh, yes, right. No, I've heard of this one. um, A real-life Israeli super spy called Eli Cohen. Now, this really caught my eye because it was written by a guy called Gideon Raff who wrote and directed a show that I loved called Prisoners of War, which is an Israeli TV show that was then adapted and made into Homeland. The Israeli... Israeli version is so much better than Homeland um, and I loved it so I thought oh Gideon Raff and it had had sort of good write-ups and as you know I love a spy drama but do you know what it, it's perfectly good but do you know what I think the problem is <laughs> not enough songs I don't know what <laughs> one of the key characters is Noah Emmerich who was Stan in the Americans oh okay Stan is the handler of the Sasha Baron Cohen character what so as soon okay, as you see confusing. Stan it puts you straight back into thinking about the Americans because it's another spy drama. And so the fact that it's not paced as fast as the Americans and that makes him a stan, all I think the whole time when I'm watching it is, oh, I really miss the Americans. 
So I can't judge it on its own. Is it any good because of the presence of Noah Emmerich? Blunder. I mean, yeah. he's brilliant. I don't uh, question his... He's an amazing his, actor, yeah. but I think, but yeah, I wouldn't so, have... He's so unmistakable as well. He's not one of these, like, DiCaprio types where you get him totally yeah. mixed up with the other guy. He's a totally like different... Like everyone does, right? He, he's right? not... He's not. This character's not a hapless boob like Stan. He's he's a. Oh come on, Stan's not a total boob. He's got boob glimpses. He's side. He's got side boob. Uh, I think, uh, definitely. For, for those of you who haven't watched The Americans, I'll let you be the judge of whether Stan was a hapless boob. Stan was the head of counterterrorism at the FBI, and he was living over the road from the greatest Russian undercover spies in American history, and he never caught them popping in and out of the house at all hours, murdering people <laughs> the, the, in like. Pretty bad weeks. The dad a lot of the was time. his best friend. Yeah, I think we can their, safely say their children Stan, were having it off. Like Stan yeah. has leapt that hurdle to have yeah. this boob. I reckon. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, um, yeah. I have been watching. Um, just speaking of politicians, which we sort of were a bit. I've been watching. Well, we were a bit. I mean, really? because well, hang on. The 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 not Murdoch son was running for president. Sure. So, yeah. And I referenced the quiet Australians. So yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah. my turn is what I'm trying to say. Like. <laughs> A more polite person would have ceded ground earlier, I mean. But anyway, that's all right. Um, I have been, I, only a couple of days ago, I thought, hmm, I haven't watched any of Total Control um, on the ABC. I thought, oh, just, um, there were two backed up episodes on iView. So I thought, I'll just, uh, I'll just see if that's any good. I'm right into it. Oh. Oh, I'm right into it. Okay. So a couple of thoughts uh, just off the top. Deborah Mailman, I would watch in absolutely anything. She is just a goddamn goddess, that woman. And so in this um, show, she is, um, she's kind of like a, a hero, right? Like she went, got famous because she intervened in a domestic violence situation outside a court. She was there for like um, some other reason and this woman was leaving the court and her ex-husband turned up with a gun and starts menacing her and Deborah Mailman's character steps up, her name's Alex, and just faces this guy down and she becomes this instant public hero. And she lives in Queensland and the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, played by Rachel Griffiths, who is a, yeah, uh uh-huh, who's a, like, gutsy, white jacket-wearing, angular-faced um, <laughs> woman of some integrity and spunk uh, under um, siege from her own colleagues. Look, it's not based on history <laughs> in any way. Um, she's, there's an election coming up. She's, like, struggling. She's got somebody, a colleague, undermining her uh, for the leadership. And she needs, like, a, some senator pops his clogs and she needs a new senator for Queensland. She's like, how about that hero woman? Let's get her. So she gets Alex on as a pre-selected senator and then Alex just goes off the rails. It's brilliant. And it made me think, you know, one of the great... I mean, so many rubbish things have happened in the last sort of few years. One of the really great things that's happened, I reckon, and I'm watching Deborah Mailman play this complicated, incredibly strong, thoughtful, fearless... Um, messed up woman, she is this sort of, I don't know, I feel like there's this national identity thing emerging around strong Aboriginal women that is this sort of, I mean, we talk about what is our national identity, it's always about like, bush rangers or, you know, cricketers who can sink 52 tinnies on an international flight or whatever. But one thing 
that has beautifully emerged, I reckon, over recent years is this incredible collection of amazing, strong Aboriginal women being depicted on screens, like in novels, so like in The Yield, which I've talked about a whole lot um, by Tara June Winch. Um, her character, August, is this incredible woman. Um, and uh, Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko has a great protagonist. Deborah Mailman's character is an incredible protagonist. Um, I just feel like there's this gathering force of evidence that this character is a really defining one for this country and I bloody love seeing it getting a bit of a go. <laughs> anyway, it's great. I also... Um, uh, um, I also um, watched Miranda Tapsell in Top End Wedding um, oh, yeah. on... Yeah, God, I love her too. And, um, and you know that she's just been nominated for an actor for that absolutely blinding performance she did on Get Cracking. Mm. Did, you, did anyone, like, I mean, go and find it and watch it. It is the most, she's with Nakia Louie, who's another, like, great bringer of these characters to our um, eyes and ears. Um, she has this fabulous, extraordinary on-screen meltdown that is some of the most um, gripping television I've seen in years and she's just been nominated for an actor award for it. So go and find it if you haven't <laughs> seen it already. It's absolutely cracking. Um, on other political content, I've got it bookmarked to watch but haven't yet, but I know you've watched an episode of it or, or two, The Politician. Yes, I have. So what's... I'm having a problem with it because um, we're staying in a place that's not our place and it's not our TV and something... It's a different TV and it... <laughs> okay... Stick with me. So, you know that you can switch it between cinema mode and whatever. I can't, we can't quite get it right. So it looks like, it just looks like Home and Away the whole time. Like, what, no matter what we're watching, yeah. it looks like it's shot like on a yeah, camcorder I or something. Totally Sorry to Home and Away, mean. I'm sure it's not shot on a camcorder. I know what you mean, And yeah. like, so the other night we got home and the gladiator was on. I'm like, I can't, oh my God, it just looks like. Yeah, it looks like a barbecue at my house with with like lions. What's going on? And like we couldn't make it work. And so I've watched the first two or three episodes right. of the politician, and I think it's really good. I certainly. Um, so it's about this kid who's known from the age of seven that he he wants to be president. So he's he's planning his life. He wants to be student president. He wants to go to Harvard. He's adopted. Um, his, his adoptive mother is Gwyneth Paltrow, which is pretty great. And he's got these two terrible brothers who just constantly menace him and um so it's about his campaign for the student presidency it's appalling like he's the the stunts that he employs are just repellent but it's quite it's I think it's a great show but I can't tell because the picture's all wrong yeah and it just makes me think I just I can't concentrate on it because yeah. I think I feel like I can see the yeah. you know the, the catering the crew yeah lurking behind yeah, I totally you know, know what you mean and yeah. I just think I feel really bad because I think if I'd made this show, I'd feel bad that someone was watching and thinking, I can't quite appreciate this because it's on the wrong mode. I bet you if you ring up, like, the TV guy and you go, look, my TV just, it looks like Home and Away all the time, everyone watching Gladiator, <laughs> he'll go, oh, you've got Home and Away, oh, I just need yeah. to go into the like, There's an ointment some... for that, yeah. <laughs> There'll be some button that it takes, like, three seconds to... 
I know, but all I want is a sort of like a... I just don't want to see people's paws. Is that wrong? I'm just, it's probably intolerant of me. And I should have the imagination and depth of character to survive it. But I just... I bloody can't. I can't concentrate. But I've, like, we've now moved back into our house. All that technically, Jeremy has moved back into our house and is taking all the children to Saturday morning sport while I swan about here in Melbourne with you. It's not entirely clear whether the water is on at our house. So, like... Oh, dear. Hi, darling. Dear. Um... Speaking of political content as well, I watched, um, I just read David Cameron's memoir um, right. for the record. Okay. And um, I watched the BBC, sort of the equivalent of the killing season called The Cameron Years. It's a two-parter. It's all on YouTube. Oh, God, it was really good. And I, I wasn't sort of sure if I would like it or not because I feel a bit like I've had it up to here with British politics. I'm doing it every second night of the, the week Britons on the show. feel the and... same way. Yeah. They're all sitting a bit like, oh, I don't know, something going um, on. It's, but it's, it was really interesting and it was also, so the key people that they've got, they don't have Boris and they don't have Theresa May but it's sort of really built heavily around David Cameron who's actually excellent talent. He's really compelling and interesting speaker. Um, he does, of course, um, you know, attempt to justify, I mean, he, well, he, he to be fair, he says um, repeatedly, I failed, I have big regrets, I've, it, every single day I wake up with just <gasps> dripping in horror at what I've done. Does, blah, he, blah, does blah. he actually use the words dripping in horror? No, but it's that sort of, he does say really? every single day, every oh, okay. single day he, he thinks about it, it, it really haunts him. Um, but, he, this... but his position is, um, I had to do it. I had to do it because these tensions were building and that somebody had to step in and address it. Anyway, and then somebody they... had to bugger off and leave it all for somebody else to tidy <laughs> up. That's often very urgent as well. So they had, um, they had, they've got David Cameron, they've got Michael Gove, who was one of his closest friends, um, but who decided he was going to go into the leave um, campaign. Those close friends, they don't really last oh, all that long, do politics. they? That? You can't really have close friends in politics. And they've got um, George Osborne, who was the Chancellor, who um, sort of told Cameron, I don't think this is a good idea, but then sort of stuck with him on it and then was like... And did Osborne, like, make sure he wrote lots of emails saying... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the, it, it's very compelling. And I also had forgotten, because, you know, the news cycle moves so fast, so you just forget stuff. So I'd forgotten that, they, of course, it's not just all about Brexit. It's about everything that happened in the Cameron prime ministership. I'd forgotten the Greek bailout, and there was just so many things that occurred. And they made a really interesting structural decision, which is episode one is all about the Brexit, and episode two is all about everything else. Like, I've forgotten about the Nick Clegg coalition government. I know, but stuff. is there really the everything else? I mean, that's the it thing was, that was, strikes me about the camera. It's just like, well, there's the one thing, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, well, that's why yeah, they've structured it like, like yeah, that. But, yeah, but, but there's the other thing, isn't there? Episode I mean, like, two, I was thinking, wow, oh, this is going to be, this is structurally hard because how are they going to, because obviously the natural ending and the chronological ending is Brexit, but they've chosen to put all of that in episode one, so you can't end with that. So how are you going to end with it? And Nick Clegg gave them this gift of a grab where he said um, something like, so they've, they've had the first election where they've had the coalition government, that's the first term. Second term, Cameron gets elected with an increased majority, but Nick Clegg's party's just decimated, so he's out. Um, and uh, Clegg says something like, you know, they're talking about how awkward it was and Clegg's going off, and he says, you know, I said to David, look, we've done some really good stuff in this first term together. Now don't stuff it up. <laughs> and that's where it ends. <laughs> and oh, it ends with, Nick Clegg does this sort of, like he goes, and so I said, you know, don't stuff it up. And then he just goes. 
And that's where its credits are all. But um, the opening titles as well, I mean, it's been done a million times, but when it's done well, it's so good, which is the, you know, the credits where you see the people come in and they're rolling with them getting mic'd and stuff and they're using, you know, all the sort of behind yeah, the yeah. Do you need some water, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And the bit that at the end... The Q&A intro. Yeah. The bit at the end, which just works so great, is... Um, They've got this bloke on the street, because there's so much anger, of course, in the UK about it all, and this bloke's going of David Cameron, you know, well, he's bloody made a mess, hasn't he? Where's the geezer now? Where's that geezer now? And <laughs> they're just running that as they shift to just using it as thought track and VO. And, and then they've got David Cameron, like, just sitting down and putting the mic, where's that geezer? He's got the mic. And then the last thing is it says the Cameron is just Cameron looks sort of at the camera and, oh, it's, it's like here's it gives you always geezer. goosebumps. It's so here's good. the geezer. Yeah, here's the geezer, yeah. It was really 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 uh, a great opening i liked it when he left his kids at the pub do you remember that no what? yeah he accidentally like he and his wife oh they would got some country house near some you know fabulous gastro pub that's in the middle of sort of nowhere but english nowhere which means like about 200 meters away and um <laughs> and they once went there for a jolly lunch and then left i can't remember how many children it was i think it might have just been one <laughs> And then it got into the papers and I was a bit like, oh. <laughs> There's That's a on, you know. very moving chapter in his memoir about the death of his son, Ivan. God, um, now I feel like a jerk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, that's right. That is, yeah. <laughs> Um, yes. who was born with profound um, yep. special needs. And, yeah, it was, oh, God, you just wonder how, how did he do that job and have that going on in the family as well. Anyway, it's very, it's a really interesting thing about how the family juggled that and managed it and what happened when he died and how he sort of carried on. It was only, it was, wasn't that very long before the 2010 election. And so he had to, he says in hindsight that there, it was bad because they didn't grieve properly because they were sort of forced to just keep carrying on. Um, but the description of what it's like to um, care for a child that has um, issues where they sort of flare up and down all the time. You never, like, get into a sense of... I mean, the two P's girls will know all about it. You never get into a sense of, like, oh, great, everything's going great, because then it's like, oh, God, now he's had a seizure and we're back and it's gone backwards again. And so um, that he writes really well about that. So as a whole, I mean, because I... You know, political memoirs are so variable. And I often find that where in the cycle they write one mm. is often a really big indicator of whether it's going to be any good or not. I mean, obviously, a political leader who writes a memoir before they're finished in politics which just never writes a good book. Like, you can tell from a book that written by a serving politician whether they feel that they have more political life left in them. If it's a boring book, it means that they're still going. Uh, <laughs> if they kind of, like... If it's interesting, it means they're done. Um, <laughs> But also, like, I think sometimes if they write it too quickly after they finish in politics, they're so driven by the bitterness of what's happened to them that they tend to not have a great perspective. Like, they're still settling, they're still settling arguments and stuff. Yeah. But I reckon, so Cameron's probably been out long enough to write a decent book, but also there's this sort of great, you know, anvil of history hanging over him, right? Like there's everyone, you go like, oh, well, you know, sure, the thing with well, the, you know, whatever. But really, up. it's the one thing that you did, isn't it, David? It's oh, tricky man. to get around. Is it, I mean, is it well written as a book? It is well written, yeah. It's it's really well written. Um, it was it was very interesting. I mean, I, I 
I'm always interested in, I guess, the a lot of political memoirs are, I did this and I did this for this reason and I did this and I did this for this reason and that's all useful. I personally am more interested in the human side of it. Like, what does it feel like when you are, you know, the leader of one of the most powerful countries in the world and then the next day you're just packing your gear and you're not? Like, I just find that, like, the sort of playing out of failure and, and triumph and all of the rest of it on such a public scale. I yeah. mean, oh my God. And I think... Um do you want to take any questions, by the way, before we keep rabbiting on? Um, we're just... going to be out of time soon, but I want to tell you one. <laughs> this, is, this is where I like to just... I do want to talk okay, to you no, about Okay, no, all right. No, no, you've I do got want more... to talk to you about... She has more printouts. It depends if people um, want to ask questions. No, Maybe if you've got a, like a massively burning one, like edge your way out and stand over there and we'll find a microphone. But so like, I feels no you... obligation. One more thing I was going to say yes. was... Yes, Toots. Um... On that question of what it feels like to lose power, there are a couple of books that are great on that, both um, coincidentally written by women. I'm sure that's an accident and a total... Because um, there are so many women who have been Prime Minister that it's like hard to pick one that is the most <laughs> insightful. But like the first chapter of Julie, Julie uh, Gillard's book is spectacular on that front. Like it's, um, it's a great kind of in real time account and also Anna Bly wrote um, oh, yeah, exceptionally yeah. insightfully um, about losing you know yeah, and she said it's like a form of grief yeah, yeah. yeah and of course she went on to have much easier jobs like representing the banking yeah. industry <laughs> just like looking for a quiet life now yeah. when again when you were away because you were deep in your Winnebago you know not showering for three weeks and that's um, right and reading of, detective fiction. you missed a very strange story about um, some wags in the UK. Do you know, if I said the name Re- Rebecca Vardy to you, does that mean anything to Nothing. you? You Excellent. sent me a weird message when I got back. You're like, what about the wags? Something about the wags. And I'm like, what? And you're like, Excellent. You haven't read it. Don't. <laughs> so I haven't. Okay. So there's two British footballers, soccer players. Um, Wayne you know Rooney. about this, of course. Of course oh, I do. I remember Wayne Rooney. Okay, Wayne Rooney. He was he 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 proposed to his girlfriend Colleen, Sham, Col- Colleen yeah. who used to wear mucklucks. Remember those boots? They made a rabbit fur. They were oh. popular for about forty seconds um, so, in the UK. And oh, let me finish. He. Um, he proposed to her. Oh, no, they were engaged and she had a massive rock. And then they went for a walk in a red squirrel sanctuary near their home. And they had a big fire and she chucked the ring into the undergrowth and oh. went, Thank you. you know, I don't love you anymore. And then, of course, they went, well, that ring was worth a million pounds or something. Oh. And so um, it was reported that there was this million pound ring, like, lying around in this red squirrel sanctuary. Oh. This is true story and this is in about 2006 or something and um i just remember it like it was yesterday and all of these people went tramping in there trying to find the ring and all of these people were like what about the red squirrels everybody knows they're the good squirrels they're being chased <laughs> out by those gray squirrel bastards and don't ruin their environment but people did it anyway well, end of story people it's are so jerks. interesting that you know nothing about this story and yet you've you've See, the audience knows you've zeroed in on a conflict between the red squirrels and the grey squirrels. That's because I know whose side I'm on, Lee. It's quite an analogy that you've, you've happened upon there. So Wayne Rooney and another player, do you know Jamie Vardy? Oh, I've got some stories. No, I've never heard of him. 
<laughs> Never heard of the dude. Okay, so I'm just going to read. I'm reading from Marina Hyde's column. No! <laughs> Marina's written about this? Yep. Okay, so I've got a Marina black spot from when I was in the Winnebago. I now read no one else on Brexit because I, Marina is in a state. This is Marina Hyde from The Guardian. She is a phenomenon. She writes on three fire. columns a week, one on sport, one on celebrity, and one on politics. And... She's so cross about politics now that um, she is like, it's like she's actually on fire and it's, <laughs> it's compelling and so brilliant and so <laughs> utterly brutal. So like she is... said something the other day about her opening line to a column was something about um, Brexit and, you know, another example of Boris Johnson failing to pull out on time. <laughs> you can't say that. You can't say that. And yet she does. It's just like, oh, Marina, wow. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so I'm just going to read from you from Marina to give you the recap because I can't recap it better than this. Um, at 10.29 hours on Wednesday morning, Colleen, wife of footballer Wayne Rooney, posted a statement which began by explaining, this was she posted it on her Insta, explaining the burden of suspecting that someone close to her had been leaking stories to the sun for years. She hatched a plan to, she had hatched a plan to smoke out the culprit. Specifically, Colleen blocked all accounts bar one from viewing her private Instagram and began posting various false stories to it. These included a basement flood in her new mansion, a telly comeback, the news that Colleen had travelled to Mexico to explore the possibility of gender selection for her next baby, your basic, <laughs> Catnip. your basic everyday drama. Affirming her hunch, these tales duly found their way into the sun. After five months, five months of watching this happen and seeing that the posts had all only been viewed by a single account, Colleen's investigation was complete. In the words of her deathless payoff, already the quote of the year, quote, it's dot, 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 Rebecca Vardy's account. <gasps> And then, um, so she goes on to say, like, five months? It's a lifetime. There are characters in Spaghetti Westerns who've bided their time and planned their revenge quest less doggedly than Colleen. And you know what? She did it at the same time as raising four boys under the age of ten. Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, absolute amateurs. Take a look at For a Few Dollars More. I don't see Lee Van Cleef having to find everyone's school shoes and bags and inhalers and Vikings projects and spare pants before he even has two minutes to himself four hours after he got up to think about hunting down the man responsible for his sister's death. For Lee, it's just a stiff drink at the saloon and off to work. Essentially, it's a movie about not being able to multitask. <laughs> anyway, the, um, the, the WAG community has sort of, of course, split, you know, a la the red, red squirrels and the grey squirrels. Um, so the heritage WAGs, you know, the older school WAGs, are all with Colleen um, Rooney. Yeah. And yeah. the others, the newer She's ones. not worth it, Colleen! <laughs> So she's gotten, she's talking about how bonded the wags of the 2006 World Cup were. The 2006 World Cup was the NAM of it bags and hair extensions. <laughs> that was muck luck ground zero. <laughs> and every true wag succubus which forged in its fires. It was where I saw Victoria Beckham wearing high heels in a swimming pool. It was... <laughs> where I watched Ellen Rives dance on a bar table singing I Will Survive. It was where a slightly delayed flight forced Victoria to observe to the FA, a dog gets better treatment than this. <laughs> it was where Sven Gore and Ericsson were still giving players billeted in another hotel what was known in tabloid terms as a nookie pass. That's heritage. <laughs> anyway, that's what you missed while you were in your Winnebago. Oh, man. Marina. 
She Marina. is the queen. She's killing it. I know. Um, can I just, I know we're nearly out of time, but can I just quickly say this one? This is a construct in your mind. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's getting to the top of the hour. She gets super itchy because she's like, okay, I've got time for one more package. <laughs> and then a bit of a, well, <laughs> I'm not touching that. And then a, thanks for joining us. And then, <laughs> um, home, cup of tea. Home, cup of tea. One episode of something. And then into bed. <laughs> See, it's like your nine o'clock bedtime is a minute. Actually, away. I've got a massive coke bender I'm about to head out on. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, but uh, you know, I mentioned I've gotten cool. <laughs> this is actually just horrifying. <laughs> um, Fleabag season two. Oh, yeah. Yes. Very hard to talk about it without doing any spoilers, so I'm going to tread very carefully. Wow, this has literally never stopped you before. Lady, I will closely narrate episode two of Dolly Parton's America down to the, like, bridging, fingering, what's it, what's it called? Like, the, when you, yeah, whatever. Too much plectrum detail. And yet now, somehow... Plectrum. Oh, I love a plectrum. I love a good plectrum. You do have, you have your own plectrum, don't you? Or No. Oh, no, I'm what? totally confusing you with somebody else. So. <laughs> I don't play the guitar. She doesn't have a guys. No, I don't. I threw one into the audience at the Enmore when I played that song on the guitar. I know you did. Yeah. Um, Fleabag season two was brilliant. And I know I said on the podcast, season one, I was like, nah, it's all right. Season two, I thought But was... I told you that season one was just a reason for watching season two, right? Like, I mean, um, it's like you don't actually ever absorb anything I said. So season one, you're saying, was like the biscuit. Season two was the dip. Is that what you're saying? ish I guess just like trying to <laughs> just trying to triage that series of just totally not working uh, I, yeah. I, just, I, I was also I was struck when I was watching it that you you're desperate to know what happened what's going to happen right so it, it propels you forward really hard because of the plot and it did make me think I think plot trumps everything I know that's a very like um you know not sort of liter. it's not a very intellectual view to think that plot trumps everything but I think, see, the thing with Fleabag is that the style is so compelling that it mm. makes you think, I mean, the, the, it, the boundary between plot and style in Fleabag is actually really hard to pick, yeah, that's right? True. Because, yeah. um, so for instance, that family lunch where they're all, like, it's shot in this most incredible way um, and lingers on everybody in that around that table and explores what's going on to an extent that actually supersedes the plot. And that is what it makes it so mm. um, extraordinary, I think. And she, um, I mean, she obviously does all that two-camera work and is... Um, oh, she, she does that so amazingly. Yeah. Um, the, one of my favourite scenes in it is the one where the sister gets the haircut. <laughs> oh, God, I was just screaming with laughter. I was so... Sorry, Anthony. Sorry, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Now you've ruined it for everybody. The sister gets a haircut, right? She ends up at the end of that evening, uh, that series, with shorter hair than she started out. And that is, you know... There you go. Unrepentant about spoiling that plot detail. Now, does anyone have a burning question that they want to ask us? See, you've done this to yourself. Now you're like... But keep it really short because (laughs) there's no time. Jesus Christ, you were the one who went into the story about the squirrels. (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned squirrels briefly. (laughs) I don't think anyone does. So can we just keep talking? Is that all right? <laughs> so uh, just because we're in Melbourne, and quickly, um, 
I'm also reading the Yellow Notebook, Helen Garner's <gasps> diary that's been um, released. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, what really more is there to say about Helen Garner? But I uh, just... The thing that's really interesting about it, I thought, well, this will just be great little vignettes of writing and I'll just enjoy each little sort of snippet. Bizarrely, a sort of a narrative sort of emerges, not, not a plotted narrative, but you get a sense that it's a woman who's sort of near the start of her writing career, she's raising a young child, she's making her way through life, she's got friends, um, she's in her you know, late 20s and then her 30s. Um, and so it, this sort of, it's almost like... Rather than a sort of book where the form's really clear, it's almost like sort of shadowy or something, but you can still, you still feel like you sort of want to know what's going to happen. I'm surprised that it sort of has got a shape like that, um, but it's really, I just dip into it sort of, it's not something that you have to keep reading all the time because it's not, you know, dry, propelling you like, say, Fleabag or Succession, but um, you can just pick it up and go, oh, this is like beautiful. It's such a pleasure. We asked her to come here tonight. And she said no before you she get said no. no, She said no. She I said just felt no. like the collective intake of But it was such a great exchange because um, we had a three-way email thing going on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and... I've gotten cool, but not that cool. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> Still working on some aspects of the irresistible cool. Um, but so she said... We said, oh, look, you know, downside is you'll probably be actually swamped and possibly physically eaten by the audience, which will be large and enthusiastic. Um, but also, we're like, you've got a book coming out, so you could come and we could just, you could, we could sneak you out, you know, dressed as a washerwoman or something, <laughs> you wouldn't have to, and, you know, we could just have a talk and about the book. And when she replied, it was this just so funny. She said, oh, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it, and I think... I just, I feel that I am essentially a small mouse and I would come and creeping mouse-like up on stage and there would be you two being all confident and then there would be your huge roaring crowd who would cat-like actually yell, roar, and tear me to pieces and then laugh while playing with the bloody bits of my body. It just actually got a bit like that. And I, by the end of it, just thought, you, I could not love you more and you don't have to come. It's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how someone who is so incredibly powerful and perceptive and brilliant can also be so kind of shy and self-effacing and experience the consequences of her writing so acutely. And that is what makes her so extraordinary I think is that you can read the suffering in every word you know you know that and Christ I can't imagine what that woman has gone through in making the decision to publish her diaries oh. um, and I suspect having been glued to every word that she's written for years that everything about the diaries will be about several levels of experience suffering regret agony and ultimately publication. Um, it's, actually, it's actually just observations about the world around. No, but there's more. <laughs> I understand her. You don't keep a journal, do you? I really don't. I never have. And, um, well, no, I've had a few sort of self-conscious stabs at it. 
Um, and I'm so appalled at most things I've ever written that I can't, anything that is sort of like, oh, today I ruminated over my cheese sandwich or whatever. <laughs> like just, it just, whatever I've tried to write in the past just sounds so risible that I just immediately wake in fright that someone will ever find it, that I'll be run over and I'll leave my computer not password protected and it'll be discovered. <laughs> it's just like, no, can't do it. The, see, I, I have started oh, trying yeah, to, looking for, looking for... You're the type. <laughs> Sometimes, every now and again, I'll get a, like a late night email or text from you, you'll be like, Crab, I've just been going over some journal notes and I just remembered how funny it was that time we talked about whatever, I'm like, oh my God, what are you, like David Niven or something? <laughs> sugar. Mm, this is quite good, actually. What are you going to do with your journal in the end? You're just going to... No, your... I just mine it for ideas when I'm looking for ideas for things. I yeah. just go back and go pouring through it and see, oh, is there any ideas? What am I interested in? Blah, blah, blah. Um, the, I remember I wrote one... Do you have a day... like, special jacket that you wear or anything? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there might be a jacket, like a smoking jacket, a frogged one, a frogged smoking <laughs> <No>. jacket. <laughs> Somehow there's a cigar involved for me. I don't I know why that down, is. I just sometimes write down interesting things people say. Like, for example, my friend James texted me yesterday and he was in some swamp looking at frogs and he said there's heaps of, like, beautiful green frogs. They're so green they look freshly enamelled. And I thought, oh, that's so good. That's <laughs> For future use, you know, theft later. <laughs> yeah, but... And when you read back over it, are you sort of horrified or you can, you can control your self-loathing, can you? No, you oh. have to. You can only you can only do it. I think if you you have to assume that nobody, including your own future self, is ever going to look at it because it's just so j- stupid. I mean, the younger ones and Ghana actually said in a newspaper oh, article the other day she burned even, all of her. I can't even. I'm not quite prepared to talk about that yet. Actually, she burned them. Um, because, the ones that were unbearable, she just burned. Because you, you're so self-centred and so it's all about, why doesn't so-and-so like me? <laughs> you know, it's all that sort of nonsense when you're younger. Um, so I try to not do that. I try to do... <laughs> what? I, try... I was just like, I've just got resting, mocking face. I can't help it. <laughs> I, try to... I encourage you, you in me? all your literary endeavours. I wrote an anecdote down about you once because I thought, oh, that oh, could good. be a good scene in something. It was um, you... Oh, it was a time at the pub and your meal, Katie upended your meal. Do you remember that? Accidentally? Narrow it down. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to read it on the next podcast. It was, you said, it was, you were at the pub, it had been busy, you hadn't eaten all day because you'd been running around doing everything for the kids, your meal landed in front of you and Katie was about two or three accidentally, you know, lent on it and it, boom, and flapped on the floor. And you said you were seized by this incredible rage. And it wasn't, it was an accident on Katie's part. So it wasn't rage at Katie. Also it was she just was a, too. I love her. She's it great. Was, it was a rage for like every time that you had cooked a meal for everyone of meat, even though you're a vegetarian. And then there was nothing for you to eat except just like a lettuce leaf. And then it was rage for every time you'd go to someone's house and they'd gone, um, oh, that's right. You're a vegetarian. Oh, you'll be fine to just have the potatoes, won't you? And it was like every bit of food rage in your life just, came into like this pinprick of this moment when your daughter upended your meal and I just thought that's really good (laughs) thank Christ you diarised it (laughs) I can't wait to read your account of this evening Lee (laughs) coming to you lightly bowdlerised 
<laughs> at uh, the next publishing opportunity. <laughs> Well, that seems like a fitting place to uh, wrap it. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming to see us this evening. It's been lovely. Thank you, Hamer Timers.